Well, some of you know this, but many of you probably haven't picked this up sort of along the way, but I have a twin brother named David, which almost always when I share with people that I have a twin, they're like, there's this sort of a shocked face, like this, like that somehow changes something about our relationship that I'm, there might, like they think that there might be another one of me walking around out there, which is sort of this weird thing. So I wanted to make it clear, David and I always say this, we're very fraternal. Uh, other twins here, I know we got Melissa as a twin. Are there any other twins in the room? You're not, no, you're not, Jonathan. Okay. Wait a minute, wait a second, no. Uh, yeah, there, it's, it's this weird thing. David and I are very, very different. We were born on the same day. I mean, there's things about twins. Generally, they're true of us, too. But we're almost just like any other sibling. I wanted to show a picture of all my siblings. So you can see David is the bearded one. I, it would take me a 1,000 years to grow a beard uh, like that. Tim never fails to remind me of that also, uh, that I could never grow a beard like this one. Um, but all of us, whether you're a twin or not, we all sort of, if you have a sibling, you understand uh, this topic that we're going to bring up today. And kids, you know this as well as anyone, this, this, uh, this idea of sibling rivalry, competing with brothers and sisters, this, this competition for approval and acceptance and uh, affection. You don't have to be a twin to know what that's like. And sibling rivalry has been around for as long as there have been siblings to rival one another. I actually got pictures of all of the siblings kind of on our staff. So here's our uh, pictures of, of Tim, of me and David, and my siblings, of Nate, of, of Katie. It's crazy. All the kid resemblances, you can see them in there. Uh, but I see it every day in my girls. So Evie and Olivia, three and one, they're so cute. Uh, I love them dearly. They're uh, precious until there's a toy they both want. Or a, or a lap that's already taken, right? Uh, it can get ugly real fast. And we all know what it's like. That's the context, in fact, for our story today, is sibling rivalry. We're actually going to look at the story. Kids, we're going to look at the story of two brothers, the first named brothers in the Bible, who paved the way for all of us into this competitive spirit that we have with those who are closest to us, our own family, our brothers and sisters. And it's not at all cute or harmless. I actually wanted to start in a high place because we're going to get real, real fast today. We're in Genesis 4, the story about Cain and Abel. And we're talking today not about sibling rivalry per se, but actually what's underneath it. We're going to dig a layer deeper and see what is, what's underneath the competition and the conflict, and the anger, and the jealousy, and the fighting. Simply put, we're going to spend the morning talking about sin. Which if you've you've been with us, we've been camped out in in Genesis, the first three chapters, for a couple months, taking us a little while to get through three chapters. But we've been exploring God's design for, for life in this world that he's made for us. That we were made in his image, which means a lot of things. We have value intrinsically. We're made to worship and serve and work and rest and cultivate and enjoy this world that he's given to us. There's only one thing we were not to do, and that is to try to be God. We saw that last week in Genesis 3, the garden, as Adam and Eve take the fruit in disobedient (laughs) rebellion against God, they do the one thing 
the only thing that we couldn't do, which is fire God from his job and try to take it ourselves. And so now, instead of ruling over creation, creation now gets the best of us. Our bodies break down from decay or disease or disaster. And the final proof, of course, is death itself. Death is introduced into the world. We saw that last week. And now sin and death are very normal. I don't have to make that case to you. This morning you know that in a lived way. And our story, this narrative, it wastes no time helping us see how, how deeply seated and far-reaching the effects of sin are in our life, our relationships. But before we turn the corner into Genesis 4, I want to pose a simple question that should help us sort of engage the narrative together. It's my favorite way to engage stories with a simple question that we can all keep in the front of our minds as we work through it. And it's this, this morning. What does God want us to know about sin from this story? I told you, it's a very simple question. I originally had the word learn. What does God want us to learn about sin? But that's too, it's too theoretical. That's too cognitive. Knowing is more comprehensive. It's more holistic and therefore more appropriate for the conversation we're about to have about sin. So have that question in the front of your mind. I'm going to make observations along the way. We'll work at some application at the end. That's sort of the, the groundwork. But that's enough pre-work. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 4. We'll start at the beginning. I'll reread verses 1 and 2 as we launch into this story. It says this. Now Adam and Eve... Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So chapter 4, it begins this new life for humans, for humanity, one outside of the garden where they're banned from Eden. But that doesn't mean that humanity no longer enjoys the benefits of of the blessing of life. The story actually starts on a high note. This is the, the first birth of children into the world, right here in Genesis chapter 4. This, the blessing remains. Remember, the blessing of Genesis 1, God blessed humanity, and a blessing in Genesis is always about life that comes from God. And so the blessing is still intact. Children are born, and I can't help but wonder, this is some creative license here. But I wonder about the hopes of these first parents. Because remember back to, to chapter 3, verse 15, there's this promise from God, through your offspring a deliverer will come. The offspring that will whose heel will be bruised but will crush the head of the snake. And I wonder could Adam and, and Eve have thought that Cain was the promised offspring? They've had this, these children. Maybe this is it. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So the scene is one of two brothers at worship. Right? Eden is off limits, but that doesn't mean God is restricted there. Uh, they bring him offerings of the fruit of their work to worship, to show gratitude to him. Cain's a farmer, so he brings grain. Abel, a shepherd, he brings fat from 
one of the animals in his flock. So far, so good. Let's keep reading. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So here it is, sort of the origin story of sibling rivalry. Here. Each brother brings an offering. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is rejected. One is met with favor from God, and one is not. And scholars, they've worked very hard to justify God's activity here, his choice. Um, maybe, maybe because Abel's sacrifice or offering included some blood, maybe that's why it was preferable. Or, you know, maybe Cain didn't bring the first grain, so, so that's why he's rejected, is because it wasn't his best. He didn't, the mechanics of the offering were wrong, so God disapproved. I think I saw six or seven different attempts at sort of explaining why, justifying why God does what he does here. But the truth is the narrator just doesn't tell us. We actually don't know exactly why one is accepted and one is rejected, at least in the ways that we want to know. The, the content of the offering or the mechanics of it weren't quite right. Now, the New Testament gives us a clue in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So there's sort of this, this internal element of faith that's involved here, not necessarily about the blood or, or the first fruits. There's something going on with the heart, and God knows that. God sees the heart, and he knows where Cain's heart is taking him. Verse 5, Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So we don't, we don't know everything about what God is doing here, but what we do know is how Cain responds to God. He's ashamed, he's envious, he's hot, he's angry about it. He's angry with God for rejecting his offering, and he's angry with Abel for being acceptable. Cain's heart is clear, it's not right. I want to pause here to make the first observation from our story. What we need to know about sin is that it has deep roots in your heart. Sin is always first a heart problem. Right, that's, the, that's the tragic consequence of chapter 3. We're all born with this sickness in us. There's no part of us that's not, that's not somehow affected by sin and its consequences. We were reading back, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible every night with Evie, and when we finish it, we just go back to the beginning and read it again. And we got to this story, Genesis 3, and here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. It says, a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every human heart, to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. God doesn't want what's really best for me. God is somehow holding out on me. And, and that terrible lie that no doubt Cain believes, and you and I believe, produces envy and jealousy and ang anger in Cain's heart and in ours. Or, or that pride that makes us puffed up 
or on the other side of the coin makes us completely deflated or lust for more, more, more that strangles the joy out of our hearts or sloth that keeps us totally indifferent toward God and the good things that he has for us. And this, this was a word for me this week. I can look like I've got it all together on the outside. But God always cares more about what's going on underneath. The motives, my desires, my attitude. What am I doing with my anger? That was a question for me this week. Most of you wouldn't look at me and think, man, he's got a bad temper. But the anger is there. It usually just comes out as passive aggressiveness for me. I have anger in my heart, this kind of anger in my heart, or pride, the, or envy, of, and jealousy of success that others are experiencing, and I want that. I did a little digging this week in my own heart. Are you digging sort of in the same way, in your own heart? And if you do, what, what would you find there if you think back on your week or your, or your morning? What is simmering in you underneath the surface? Because sin has roots that are planted way deep down in our hearts, and we need to know that, not just as a theory or a doctrine, something that's sort of outside of us. We need to know that in very personal ways. Okay, verse 6. God engages Cain. It says, the Lord said to Cain, which, as an aside, is an incredible thing. There's this personal interaction that's happening outside the garden between God and Cain. And God comes to Cain in a very gracious way and says, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. And you must rule over it. So God's really gracious here. It's like Cain. A child. That wasn't great. We both know it. That offering that you brought, not because I don't like grain or vegetables. It's your heart. Do you see, Cain, where it's leading you? Do you know it doesn't have to be this way? It's incredible. Cain, or God warns Cain before the wheels fall off. Before he makes his decision about what to do with his anger, God steps in and engages him. And he uses a phrase I want to just sit with for a minute. It's the vivid picture of caution. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Like a predator lying in wait, waiting for its prey. Or an attacker that's sort of around the corner, ready to strike an ambush. Like a cat, and ready to pounce on whatever is waving at it. Sort of the picture here. But actually, it's more sinister, and it's related to Genesis 3, the picture of the serpent back in the garden. Remember, the, the original hearers, those who read this, who heard this, they had, they had categories for supernatural beings in the world, active in the world, that we don't really have. We often just sort of forget about what's immaterial. And the language here suggests more than like a lion ready 
to get its prey. It's actually more like a demon. There's this well-known demon in the area in that day that was thought to linger around doorways, ready to ambush, ready to strike, ready to overcome anyone who crossed the threshold. And that's the picture here. Evil is personified as a supernatural being ready to strike, eager to, to ambush, overcome whoever goes through the door. And that's the second observation I want to make here. Sin has roots, deep roots in your heart. That's true. We also must know sin is scheming against you. It's ready to, to strike. And that's not just in you. It's actually trying to get you in a very sinister way. We don't think about that very often, but it's true. Actually, one of my favorite works from C.S. Lewis is the Screwtape Letters, which is all written in a way to help you understand that there is supernatural evil in very personal ways scheming the plays out of a playbook for you. I mean, do you ever feel like the temptations that trip you up are kind of aimed right at where you're the weakest? If you do, that's because they are. The evil one knows, he understands your shame, he understands your baggage, he understands your insecurities, he knows where you're the proudest, where you think you would never fall. He knows where you look for relief, where you're the most vulnerable, and that is where he strikes. He's scheming it. He's writing up plays for you. He's crouching at your door. Now, we may not go the way of Cain. Listen, each, each one of us is a few bad decisions away from self-destruction and a lifetime of regret. And I mean that. I have been right there. We need this warning. I know it's sober. The room went way down. But this is, we're talking about sin. This is an important topic to be serious about. We need this kind of sobering warning. Andrew, it's crouching at your door. But listen, you don't have to follow that desire. You can turn away and do what's right. In fact, you must. God's warning to Cain here is, is actually encouraging. It's like you're not doomed to fail just because there's a scheme against you. Cain has a choice to make about sin. That's why God steps in and warns him. And we have the same choice to make about our sin. Sometimes we ignore the sin crouching at the door. Like, that's not a big deal. I just pretend it's not there. It'll be okay. Like it rained like 70 inches this last week in Kansas City, and it took me until Friday to go down to my basement and make sure that was fine. Because I was just, ah, maybe if I ignore that, there's no water down there. There wasn't much water. It was great. <laughs> that shouldn't prove the point. Anyway, or we try to manage it. We try to think, oh, well, I can handle this. I can handle it. It's not that big of a deal. Or we actually nurture it. We feed it, intentionally or otherwise. We encourage its growth like a pet. I'll just, just play with it when I want to. 
I got to keep it alive. But if you want the joy that comes with obedience to God, to walking into the design that he has for you in life, you've, you've actually got to kill it. To master sin, to rule over it. That's the language here in Genesis 4, in the caution. And the Hebrew is explicit. There's this emphatic pronoun from God to Cain. You, you must rule over it. It's emphatic. And we'll spend time in a few minutes getting practical about how to scheme back against sin. But we need to finish the story. Let's keep going. Verse 8. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up, up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's crazy how short and abrupt this description is. Just like Genesis 3. They took the fruit and they, they ate it. Cain found his brother and he killed him. Plain, abrupt, really tragic retelling where Cain ignores everything God says, finds him in the field, kills him in cold-blooded murder. The way that Moses is telling the story, human number three kills human number four. That's, that's, where, that's where we are. The first person born is a murderer. Cain is mastered by this unchecked, Envy, anger, jealousy, it gives birth to murder of his own brother. I mean, what was that like for Adam and Eve to hear this news? Remember, they, the serpent whispers to them in the garden, you shall not surely die. And yet here they are, their own son dead at the hands of the other. Now, verse 9, God comes back to Cain, re-engages him with a question. It's just like from Genesis 3. And as an aside, if you have time, read the garden account in 3 and chapter 4 side by side. They're so closely connected. God comes with the same question. Where are you? Where is Abel, your brother? And it's not a fact-finding question. I mean, God knows where. Like, he doesn't know the whereabouts. Of Abel. It's actually an interrogation of Cain's heart. Where is your brother? And Cain, with just outright lies, I don't know. It's not my problem. I mean, that's that's the the meaning. But he's not, am I my brother's keeper? Is that my responsibility? Almost a, this sort of sarcasm in his voice back to God as he shifts blame away and shirks all responsibility for his family. There's actually a word play here, this word keeper. If you go back to Genesis 2, in our job description, remember we're called to care for and keep creation. That's what we're, to guard it, to protect it, that's what we're meant to do as humans, and what a reversal here. Where Cain is using that word to say, that's not my responsibility. Cain's response to God betrays him as an indifferent, lying murderer. And now God shifts from interrogator to, to prosecutor. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What an intense picture. And now you are cursed from it, from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer 
on the earth. I'm afraid we're so desensitized today in our day to the just the heinous nature of murder that we kind of miss the full force of this. What's happened here? It sort of takes unthinkable events like shootings or or the piling up of the news of shootings to bring us to the, t- the kind of grief that God expresses here, where the life of an image bearer is just snuffed out in cold, heartless murder. It grieves God's heart. And here, the only speaking that Abel does in this story doesn't say a word otherwise. God says his voice cries out from the ground, this innocent victim pleading for justice, and God hands it out. Cain doesn't die, but he is cut off from anything meaningful in his life. Community, vocation, rootedness. He's now a wandering fugitive whose only refuge is the wilderness. And he objects. says, this is too much. I, I won't be able to work. I'll be hidden from you. I won't have a home. And ironically, most ironically, he says, someone might kill me. Now, Cain and Abel, they surely had other siblings, unnamed at this point, who proliferate the world. I don't think these are literally humans number three and four. They're just named here to tell this pivotal story in the narrative of of Genesis. There There are people that Cain is worried about who might kill him, which deepens the irony. Cain is fearful of dying at the hands of a brother or sister. That's the impact here the consequences of his sin. And the the third observation I want to make from this story and sort of the unraveling of Cain's life is that sin wants to destroy everything good in your life. Like a cancer that is spreading into every part of your body. It wants to destroy you. Now, no one plans it like this. No No one wants to end up in someone else's bed someday. You don't set out to shame your kids into anxiety and despair in a life of trying to perform. We don't intend to build our lives around hollow success or control others to the point of suffocating them. We don't, none of us want to do that, but we, we do those things. And those patterns started a long time ago with stuff that we didn't think was that important, that mattered very little, but our sin schemes against us, it shapes us, alienates us, and then until it destroys our lives and the people we love, that's what it's designed to do. And if we don't heed God's warning to master sin, we can expect brokenness and dysfunction and isolation and futility and pain and death in all of life. We should expect it which sounds like maybe an overstatement, but it's not. Sin takes everything good and distorts it, breaks it, destroys it, and worst of all, moves us farther and farther away from our maker, our good and gracious God, who comes after us again and again, who will never stop pursuing you, but will let you experience the consequences of your choices, your sin. And the narrative ends with Cain, settling even farther away 
East of East. It's a phrase that's used to speak of going farther away from God and his design. He settles in this place called Nob, which literally means wandering. He's a wandering fugitive in a place of wandering. Actually, I love James 1. I think it's a perfect description of this narrative where it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the picture in this narrative. Sin has deep roots in your heart. It's scheming against you, and it wants to destroy everything good in your life. Happy Sundays. Go in peace. <laughs> Just kidding. That'd be terrible. Obviously, we need a final observation. We need even some handles. What do we do with this type of story? And with this, the heaviness of a sermon on sin, how do we fight back? Because the, the reality is we have to kill sin before it kills us. I know it's sort of a cutesy way to say it, but it's true. That's God's warning of caution. Remember back, God says sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. You must overcome it. So let's get practical I want to offer just a few quick pieces of sort of practical application. First, if you want to kill sin, you need to start by exposing it with the light. Bring it into the open. Because your sin, my sin, loves the darkness. It thrives there, like mold. It grows in unexposed places of your heart. <laughs> We've got to start here. The only way to, to rule over sin is to uncover it, to tell the truth about it, to confess it, which is uncomfortable, to say the least. It's vulnerable. Showing our struggle, especially if this is years and years of isolation and darkness, that can be real. It can be really scary to confess sin. But the alternative is, is far worse. Psalm 32, David describes unconfessed sin like this. He says, I kept silent. My, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. I had no strength. It was dried up as by the heat of summer. If, if left in the dark, sin will do that to you. It will consume you. And it comes from the inside out. So a question related to this. When is the last time you confessed sin to someone you trust? I mean, really, in kind of both that terrifying and life-changing way, where it's met with grace, met with forgiveness, the gospel is right there, it's quick <clears throat> to be heard, and yet you have to do the hard thing of uncovering, exposing sin by the light of truth. When's the last time you did that? We, you, have got to train to fight back. Sin is deeply rooted in your heart and it's scheming against you. It's fighting. There's a fight. There's a battle being waged here. And the best practices I know for training against sin are the spiritual disciplines, which it feels churchy to say. To bring, like It's always an application point. Is you should be engaging 
scripture and spending time in regular prayer. But listen, this is a church and I'm a pastor, so I'm okay with saying churchy things because I think this works. This is the only way to fight against sin. If you're controlled by fear, but you never pray, or consumed with anger, but you never spend time alone with your own thoughts with God, or overcome with lust or greed, but you never say no to anything in your life, or you're obsessed with what other people think of you, but you never actually spend time in God's word and know what he says is true about you, you will be killed by the sin that is scheming against you. Now, these aren't, they're not quick fixes, and you can't change your life on your own. Your heart, you, you aren't qualified for that work. But the disciplines are practices, my favorite definition, that put you in the way of God's grace so that he can change you by the power of his spirit. It's the things that you and I can do to accomplish the end that we can never do, which is have changed hearts and be whole again. So start and end your day with prayer. Make t- Carve out time for quiet reflection. Read your Bible daily and study it often. Practice self-denial and service even when you don't have to. Fast. Say no to things. If, if you and I do these things, God will, over time, make us ready to fight, to train to fight back. And yet, you and I will still fail. We won't be strong enough. Even with the best accountability and training, we'll blow it many times over. And in those moments, you and I, like Cain, stand condemned. This imagery of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. It's cries for justice and judgment against wrongdoing. And we stand in that same place. We're not that different from Cain. But according to Hebrews, there's another person's blood, also innocent, also murdered. But instead of judgment, his blood, Jesus' blood, it doesn't cry out condemned, it cries out forgiven. Victory, it's a voice, a cry of victory. It speaks, Hebrews says, Hebrews 12 says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Which is why the Christian story is so incredible. It's so hopeful. So graciously beautiful. You don't have to fight sin alone. You can give it all to Jesus. He's already taken it himself. He bore it himself on the cross. Your sin has been nailed to a tree and crucified. And it, by faith, you and I trust Jesus to do that work for us. We can now go about the work of killing sin in our lives. It's been dealt with. You can give it all to Jesus, and actually you must. It's the only way. You can't kill sin in your life without doing that first. Yes, sin is rooted in your heart, scheming to destroy you. We have have hurt others with our sinful choices. But Jesus knows all of that. He knew all of that. And that's the best thing we can know about sin today is that Jesus speaks a better word over you 
through his blood, sin and all, you are loved, you are precious, you are forgiven. Jesus says, you are mine. I bought you at a great price. And so today, confess your sin to him. Expose it with the light. And maybe for the first time, receive that forgiveness. Receive it afresh this morning from the only one whose blood will speak over you, forgiven, victorious, you are loved.